Good morning, everyone. Great to see you today. I'm glad that you're here. As you can see, it's Communion Sunday, so significant day for the body of Christ to be together. Well, I'm turning in my Bibles to the book of Daniel, chapter 7. Daniel chapter 7. I'm going to ask that you would pray with me as you make your way there. Lord, thank you for leading us, Lord, thus far as Al and Kevin, the children who have come up, and the voices of all those who have gathered here together have lifted their hearts and minds to you. Lord, oftentimes we wake up in the middle or in the morning and our hearts are fluttery. They need direction. And Lord, so we need this time together in your word. I need a fresh vision. Lord, you know what we need today. And so I pray that you would give us a glimpse of what you have and what's to come. Lord, this is a great and marvelous passage. Thank you for what we're about to look at together. So I pray for your power. Lord, I pray for your spirit to do what only he can do today. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Daniel chapter 7, beginning with verse 1. Would you stand with me as we read? In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel saw a dream and visions of his head as he lay in his bed. Then he wrote down the dream and told the sum of the matter. Daniel declared, I saw in my vision by night and behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea and four great beasts came up out of the sea, different from one another. The first was like a lion and had eagle's wings. Then as I looked, its wings were plucked off and it was lifted up from the ground and made to stand on two feet like a man, and the mind of a man was given to it. And behold, another beast, a second one, like a bear. It was raised up on one side. It had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth, And it was told, Arise, devour much flesh. After this I looked, and behold, another, like a leopard, with four wings of a bird on its back. And the beast had four heads, and dominion was given to it. After this I saw in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, terrifying and dreadful and exceedingly strong. It had great iron teeth that devoured and broke in pieces and stamped what was left with its feet. It was different from all the beasts that were before it, and it had ten horns. I considered the horns, and behold, there came up among them another horn, a little one, before which three of the first horns were plucked up by the roots. And behold, in this horn were eyes like the eyes of a man, and a mouth speaking great things. As I looked, thrones were placed. And the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow, and the hair of his head like pure wool. 
His throne was fiery flames. Its wheels were burning fire. A stream of fire issued and came out from before him. A thousand thousands served him, and ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court sat in judgment, and the books were open. I looked then because of the sound of the great words that the horn was speaking, and as I looked, the beast was killed and its body destroyed and given over to be burned with fire. As for the rest of the beasts, their dominion was taken away, but their lives were prolonged for a season and a time. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. You can have a seat. Well, the vision that we have just read takes place at a time of instability. Remember Belshazzar? He's a careless man. And as we have already seen, actually, it was actually said that the people of Babylon welcomed the Persian invaders when they finally took the city. They were that ready to be done with this king. But for the Jewish exiles, okay, who were awaiting, remember, the end of their banishment, okay, remember through the prophet Jeremiah, 70 years were foretold as exile for the people of God. Now that time was nearing its end. But if Babylon were to fall, then what would become of God's people? Right? This is the pressing question for Daniel at this moment. What would it take to finally get home? Now, if you're into movies at all, you may recognize my twist on the title of my message. It comes from a film by a similar name called Fantastic Beasts and where to find them. But the movies are not the only place that you will find fantastic beasts. They are throughout the pages of Scripture as well. But unlike Hollywood, what we find in the Bible are not playful or grand or beautiful beasts of fictional lore. They are horrifying Ferocious beasts. Symbolic, yes, they're not real, they are symbols, but they are symbols of real things. Okay. And the journey home will not mean finding these beasts, but it will require facing them. Now we are now entering what is typically regarded as the second half of the book of Daniel, right? And the change in style is obvious to any reader, right? And that is why the book is so often dropped at this point. We just, so many people just give up here. But you can't let the change of style dissuade you from pressing on, because Daniel has one message to give us. This is one book, after all. And if it was not intended to be understood, 
then Daniel would not have written it this way. So his first readers would have grasped what he's writing here, this kind of style. The effort then needs to be made on our part to get to know what it is that we're looking at. So really, the first question that we're going to start with today is, how do I read this? How do I read these things, right? Well, first of all, what I want you to do is recognize that Daniel's no longer writing in what you call a narrative or a storytelling fashion, right? This is what biblical scholars call apocalyptic writing. It's going to take a little adjusting to acclimate to it. But I want you to think of it this way, okay? It's really not hard. Think of it that we are moving from storytelling to movie watching. Now, some of you just woke up, hey, we're watching a movie? Not exactly, okay? But the way that a movie is visual, right, and it's one picture after another, that's how you want to think of this writing, it's, we are seeing what Daniel saw, and it's one scene after another. This is writing that is visual, and it's vivid, and it's sensory. And when you think of it that way, it's really quite accessible to us, right? In much the same way that a picture book is accessible to a child who can't read, right? As the saying goes, a picture is worth a thousand words. And this is important because apocalyptic writing is found throughout the Bible, not just here. It's part of the Word of God, so you can't ignore it because at one point or another you're going to run into it. And when you do, listen, you're not going to want to miss what is being said. Because the word apocalypse, in short, is this. It's revelation. That's what it means. To be revealed. Hence the book of Revelation at the end of your Bible. It's the unveiling of Jesus Christ. And not just that, but these portions of Scripture are where God, you think of it this way, God peels back the curtain, allowing us to see an unseen world and how that world, God's world, is going to bring this present world to an end. Right? History is not circular. It's not repeating itself. It is linear. It has a beginning and it has an end. And that end is not unknown. Right? It's not left to the fate of what's happening down here. It may look chaotic. It probably sure looked that way for Daniel. It may look that way now. But that's why you have to finish the book. <laughs> that's why God gives us apocalyptic revelation. Okay. Now, right away you're going to notice two significant shifts that are meant to get our attention. Okay. So verse 1, Daniel chapter 7, says this, right? In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel saw a dream. Okay. Did you see this, number one, that there is a shift in sequence? So for the first time in the book, Daniel is now deviating out of the chronological order. Because notice who's king here. It's not Darius or Cyrus, who we read about in chapter 6, but Belshazzar. Remember him? We read about him back in chapter 5. Right? The man who was the grandson or perhaps even the son of Nebuchadnezzar. So this is the time when Babylon is still in power. And by the way, that incident in chapter 5 occurred on Belshazzar's last night right, as king. The last night of during his life. But according to Daniel here in chapter 7, it takes place where? 
or when? In the first year of Belshazzar. This is probably 15 years or so before chapter 5. Well, so why is it here? Because the format of the book, of the book that Daniel's writing, is shifting. Okay? Instead of moving into exile and dealing with life under Babylonian power, the focus now is moving out. Okay? The 70 years of exile is nearing completion. And what is required to return home? That's the question. And you also see that this coordinates with a shift in audience. Because unlike the first six chapters, now again for the first time, who receives the vision? Daniel. Right? Until this point, Daniel has only been the interpreter of the dreams and visions of other people. Okay. But from here on out, Daniel's the one getting the vision, and he's the one who's going to need an interpreter. So think of it this way. Daniel's chapters 1 to 6 was primarily a message given to Gentile rulers and Gentile kings. It was for the outside world to know that God is sovereign and He's all-powerful. Remember, think Nebuchadnezzar and Darius's worldwide decrees about the living God and His eternal kingdom. Daniel 7 to 12, on the other hand, is given to Daniel. Okay? And thus it is primarily for Israel, whom he represents. What will happen with God's people. So, God had a message for the world. That's chapters 1 to 6. But now he has a message for his people. It's chapter 7 to 12. Now, very quickly, we're about to discover that the way home is not simply 1,600 miles of walking from Babylon to Jerusalem. Now, the Jews will return home as God promised. But what we find out very soon is that that is not the end of exile. The real distance is between man and God. That's the, the scope of what the exile really is. And we have to ask ourselves, is what must take place before the kingdom of this world becomes the kingdom of the saints? And first of all, we are told through Daniel that things are going to get beastly. Daniel 7, verses 1 to 8, is why we have trouble sleeping at night. Assuming that you are not living in a hole in the ground and you read the news. Okay. Now what you're going to notice as you read this chapter is that there's a remarkable similarity between this vision and you remember Nebuchadnezzar's dream back in chapter 2? right? Remember that statue? and the four metals representing four kingdoms? Well, this is a reiteration of that dream. And it balances the arrangement in Daniel's writing. Remember, chapter 4 is paired with chapter 5. Chapter 3 is paired with chapter 6. Chapter 2 is paired with chapter 7. All right, this is why chapter 7 is also in Aramaic originally. Daniel wants these chapters together. But as we've just said, it's also apocalyptic. It's a different style. And so it's this chapter is linked up with the rest of the book. What can you say then? Well, this is a central chapter. It's a linking chapter. This chapter is a big deal, is what I'm saying. One scholar put it this way. This is the, one of the most important chapters in the Old Testament. Okay? It's a central guide to biblical prophecy. Okay. 
And like the dream of chapter 2, the elements and the contents are, are the same. They're almost identical. But what you'll notice is the perspective is vastly different, right? Notice this. The perspective is vastly different. The perspective from chapter 2 is man's view of the world powers. Man's view of the nations, right? Man looks and marvels at the impressiveness, right, of military strength and speed of conquest. Man wonders at human ingenuity. Man is enraptured with all that glitters. And you have been there. You have said similar things, right? How many of us ever said, you know, the United States of America is the most powerful nation on earth, right? You realize that the Babylonians said that at some point? You realize the Romans said that at some point? The British Empire said that at some point? We like to strut that. But it's man's perspective. And this is why it's so disturbing to Nebuchadnezzar when one small stone completely obliterates the entire thing, right? But it was so mighty. It was so impressive. Reminds me of a day long before this when, remember this, when two warring nations were all standing with their mouths gaping open at this massive specimen of a man. Do you remember this? They couldn't get over this guy's might and his size, and it terrified them. And yet seemingly out of nowhere, with a small stone, this Goliath of a man is brought down. Remember that story? And who did it? God's anointed. God's anointed did it. The way the Philistines and the Israelites looked at Goliath describes to a T man's outlook of the nations. But chapter 7 is God's perspective on the same sweep of history. So we're in verse 2. Daniel declared, I saw in my vision by night, and behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea. Uh, welcome to the apocalyptic. Okay. One thing that's going to characterize this writing is metaphor and symbolism. Okay. So you see several things here already. The great sea, it's a symbol of chaos, a symbol of godlessness of the world. Look at Psalm 93, verses 3 to 4. It's a place from which opposition to God arises. But notice also that it is what? The four winds of heaven, okay? Relating to God, that is stirring these waters. There's never any doubt to God's sovereignty over what is happening. Now, verse 3. And four great beasts came up out of the sea, different from one another. The first was like a lion and had eagle's wings. Then as I looked, its wings were plucked off and it was lifted up from the ground and made to stand on two feet like a man. And the mind of a man was given to it. And behold, another beast, a second one like a bear. It was raised up on one side. It had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth. And it was told, Arise, devour much flesh. After this I looked and behold, another like a leopard with four wings of a bird on its back. And the beast had four heads and dominion was given to it. When God looks at the same sweep of human history, that to man looked mighty, that looks impressive, to him, the same human kingdoms are animalistic, ravaging beasts. Now, we know they represent kings and therefore kingdoms, 
Because if you turn the page over in verse 17, just to drop in on this, Daniel writes, These four great beasts are four kings who shall arise out of the earth. Okay, so we're not left to speculation. Now let's just ponder that for a minute, right? God's estimation of the dominant world powers in all their glory, in all their might, is that they are nothing more than ravenous, unreasoning animals. Actually, they're worse than that. They're monstrous, right? They are half like this and half like that. They only resemble the form of animals. This is man in his sin-infested life. You realize that sinning is the most irrational thing that a person can do. It is to defy the one who holds your breath. And yet how casually we carry on and refuse to listen, refuse to obey. It's nonsensical. That's a mind that's made foolish, set on its own cravings. Paul was writing to Titus, remember, on the island of Crete, and he quotes one of their own philosophers who said, you know, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. And you know what Paul said after that? Well, maybe this philosopher was a little exaggerated. You know, they're not that bad. No, he says, this testimony is true. It's right. They are liars. They are evil beasts. Sin is an infestation that grows. It gets worse. And so such behavior in the church, as he writes to Titus, is to be rebuked. It's to be corrected. And if you don't, he says, watch out, remember the Galatians, otherwise you'll devour each other. That's the outcome of the beast nations. They devour one another. And you'll notice the progression of each scene is one of increasing ferocity. Right? The only one that likens any semblance of man is the first. right? And that's only after the wings have been plucked off and it has been made to stand on two feet. And remember this, the mind of a man was given to it. The likeliest connection here is that this refers to the restoration of Nebuchadnezzar. Remember this? In the prophets, Nebuchadnezzar was compared to both a lion and an eagle. And in his humiliation account, it ends with his mind, remember, being given back to him. He's most like a man when he's worshiping the true God. But it only gets worse after this. The second one appears suddenly with a previous victim already in its mouth. right? And it's told, arise and eat more. And Daniel can only compare it to some kind of misshapen bear. right? The third then shows up, and this is a, like a leopard, but it has four wings on its back and four heads. Well, the, rings, the wings express the speed of this conqueror. And the four heads picture a line of sight in all directions, right? So there's no hiding from this beast. Alexander the Great of Greece went out and conquered the known world in ten years. Okay, people don't get their doctorate in ten years. And he was done conquering. And then comes the fourth beast, right? Verse 7. After this I saw in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast terrifying, dreadful, exceedingly strong. It had great iron teeth. It devoured, broken pieces, stamped out what was left with its feet. It was different from the other beasts. Daniel goes on to say it had ten horns, and then he says, when I thought about the horns, there came up 
among them another one, a small one, before which three of the first were plucked up. And behold, in this horn there were eyes like the eyes of a man, and a mouth speaking great things. So the last beast, this final one to arise, it defies any description. Daniel cannot compare it to any animal. It's beyond that. Only we are told that it's dreadful, that it's terrifying, it's strong. Its teeth are iron, and whatever it doesn't eat, it tramples. Like the fourth kingdom of Daniel 2, this kingdom is given the most attention. Right? From it arises ten horns, and out of that, one in particular. Now, we'll talk more about that. But did you notice that none of these beasts okay, are completely autonomous? Did you catch that? Did you see that one of them was made to stand, right? And it was given the mind of a man. And then to another, it's told, arise, devour much flesh. So it has to be told before it can do. And the third also is given dominion. Now, the only one that seems to claim any independence, this fourth kingdom, is also eventually brought to judgment. The books are open. In fact, for all of its ferocity and its terror and its loud boasting, right, this little horn, do you realize that it's killed in the most anticlimactic way? I mean, we're expecting, like, epic battle here, right, this, with this fourth beast, the way this beast is talking, right? He's talking some big game. But look at verse 11. I looked then because of the sound of the great words that the horn was speaking, and as I looked, the beast was killed and its body destroyed. You say, wow, that's it? Yeah. You're meant to feel the smallness of the little horn, right? The little horn that thought he was something. Sounds like a children's book. You want the New Testament version of it? 2 Thessalonians said this, And then the lawless one will be revealed whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of His mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of His coming. That's how it ends for the fourth beast. You know, when we got back from... uh, took our mother-in-law to Minneapolis um, for her flight the other week, we decided to spend the last day uh, seeing Como Zoo. Have you been to the zoo before? Minneapolis? Okay. My favorite part, hands down, okay, was the bison. You seen the bison there? Okay. Incredible, right? Now, it must have been lunchtime because they were moving around. They were moving from one pen to another, and they were clearly very excited, okay? So one of them, this big one, started running, okay? And, and he is gunning towards the fence, and we are standing here, and he is heading our direction, right? Okay. And I'll tell you what, he was getting close before he decided to let off the gas. And for a minute there, you just naturally kind of think, like, flinch. I remember my, my wife was like, now, let me clarify. I did not flinch, okay, as it, as it drew close. Because, listen now, because I was staring at the fence in front of me, right? Okay, I knew, I'm like, oh, there's, okay. Despite the horror, okay, of these, in Daniel 7, of these man-eating, right, beasts, their power, their ferocity, we are never allowed to lose sight of the fact that they are fenced by a sovereign God. So whatever they have 
has been given to them. Now that raises a question, okay? Which is, why is it that such beasts as these possess any dominion at all? Okay? And this is the point where I want you to begin to thinking about the scope of exile that we're talking about here. Because it's not just Daniel, but it's or the Israelites, but it's all people who are far from home. When God made the world, whom did he give dominion to? Was it the beasts? No, right? Well, back in Genesis chapter 1, in verse 27, it said, So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. So Adam and Eve and all their offspring are originally given, right, by God, dominion over every living thing. But what happened, right? A few pages later, we read this, that the serpent was more crafty than any other, what, beast of the field that the Lord God had made. And it goes on, deceiving the woman to sin along with her husband. And so the serpent, a beast, usurped the dominion given to man. He steals it. So the dominion that these beasts that we're reading about in Daniel 7 is the usurped dominion of the serpent. This is the seed of the serpent. And what this does is sets up a contrast here because between these beasts of verses 1 to 8 and the figure who is introduced to us in verse 13. Look at this. Daniel says, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. Now, look at the title, right? Who is the one who comes on the clouds to the Ancient of Days? It's the Son of Man, right? Or literally, the Son of Adam, To this one is given dominion, glory, a kingdom, right? That all peoples everywhere should serve Him, meaning worship Him. Who is He? Well, He is the true man. We know that much. As one writer well said, the true man is all that humans as God's image were meant to be, but failed to be. Now, unlike Adam, this son of man, we know, lived a life of obedience perfectly. And even though death came by the first Adam, because all those kingdoms, all those rulers, all those people who are under them will perish, they will come to ruin, there is a second son of man that Daniel here is seeing, whom all authority and dominion will be given to. And we know this son of man to be none other than Jesus Christ. Paul would later declare that By Jesus' obedience, many will be made righteous. So instead of men become beasts, it is men who are beasts, beastly, restored as true sons of God. How? Well, is this a matter of us duplicating what Jesus did? Is that how we do this? No. You could never duplicate what He did. Because why? Because everyone has sinned, right? You're not qualified to do that. So what then? Well, we are to look to Him the Bible says, as our substitute, as our representative head. The good news is, this Son of Man 
stood for us. And He was crowned with glory and dominion. Okay? The Bible says the promise of salvation then depends on faith. Not you duplicating it. It depends on faith in the true Son of Man. It's those who are united to Him by faith who will receive the kingdom. So folks, okay. The way home is no less beast-ridden now than it was in Daniel's day. Things are going to get beastly. Okay? A man of lawlessness, when we read about, has yet to be revealed. But the way home okay, has been secured by the true Son of Man. Right? In the end, it is His kingdom that's going to be left standing. Until then, the nations will rage. Until then, suffering will continue. Until then, persecution will grow. And therefore, our need of the true Son of Man only grows hour by hour. And that is why we come regularly and eagerly to the table that's set before us here. Because Jesus wanted you to dine with Him. Isn't that interesting? And all the chaos and all the tumultuous times in which we live, Jesus says, hold up a minute. We need to have dinner. In much the same way that Daniel's eyes were redirected, I mean, he was absorbed, alarmed by the beasts. But God said, no, I want you to fix your eyes up here on my throne. Okay. This is where your eyes need to be, Daniel. And in the same way, Jesus is drawing back our eyes to what is needed most. It's not to fill your stomach. right? This little cracker and cup isn't going to do that. That's not its purpose. Right. But two things He knows that we need on this journey home. Okay. And this is what I want you to think about as we participate in the Lord's Supper today. Okay. That you need to feed your soul... And you need to fix your hope. Lord, we just want to thank you because though we failed, though we are Adam's race, weak and stumbling, you, Lord, did what we could never do. You're the true Son of Man. And you're the Son of God. And one day every eye will see you coming on the clouds of heaven. And every knee will bow. But Lord, the time is now, before the day of reckoning. So I ask, oh God, that you would awaken us to see uh, what we have read together today. You being crowned with glory. Lord, draw people to yourself and awaken us to live a life of righteousness for your name's sake. Thank you, Lord, for the body of Christ gathered together today. I ask that you would bless and protect them as they go from here now. In Jesus' name. Amen.